Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to Blog Talk Radio in high fidelity. This is why I'm in here. Go on air. Join us. Oh, my Janthony's thing. Slow. Save life on planet Earth. Blog Talk Radio Show. Bringing you solution bearers with practical, proven, scientific ways to help you eliminate global level irradiation and extinction level threats from your body and bringing forward the means to restore and sustain global waters, air, soil, and sentient life. Welcome. Hmm. Welcome. <laughs> Don't cruise nowhere, just park somewhere or something. Greetings. This is Siava, also known as Lisa Wolf, your host. Welcome to the Utopian Realities. From concept to planetary restoration, Slope. Save and sustain life on planet Earth. Earth Aid Now. Saturday Solution Bearers Forum, where we bring you solution bearers who can help us to mend the sacred hoop of life. As always, listeners, follow the link to listen to the program and to join the live chat page and phone 845-277-9359 with questions and comments. Thank you for joining us as Earth Aid Now, radio's weekly Standing with Standing Rock, Savage Sovereignty, and Water Protectors Council meets with Rika Rouse and Eagle Eyeman, and hopefully Chief Phil Lane Jr. will be joining us. And our guests will be speaking about surviving Indian boarding schools. And later in the program, we'll hear part of an interview I did a few days ago with Professor Victor Duville speaking on reestablishing traditional government. Chief Phil Lane Jr. and Rika Rouse and their relatives endured the Indian boarding school system and have been part of the struggle to right the wrongs. Rika graduated from St. Paul Indian Mission in 1976 and lives in Marty, South Dakota. She will be speaking about surviving the St. Paul Indian Mission and what it means now. And um, because Chief Phil isn't with us yet and we uh, open these programs with prayer, we're going to begin by listening to uh, the a Thanksgiving address. And... Uh, Dayton Horado, a yeti Nistaha of Wonder. 
Welcome, Rika. Welcome, Eagle. Mm, thank you for having us. Yes. Uh, you know, as we explore in these programs the path to sovereignty for the Ocheti Sakawin and for all um, tribal people globally, we look at various aspects of what was done to destroy sovereignty. And so our topic today is Indian boarding schools, um, residential schools. And to put it in perspective, I'm, I'm going to read a little information for those who aren't familiar with uh, the boarding schools. And this is from Wikipedia. American boarding schools were established in the United States during the late 19th and early 20th centuries to educate Native American children and youths according to Euro-American standards. These boarding schools were first established by Christian missionaries of various denominations who often started schools on reservations and founded boarding schools to provide opportunities for children who did not have schools nearby, especially in the lightly populated areas of the West. The government paid religious societies to provide education to Native American children on reservations. In the late 19th and early 20th centuries, the Bureau of Indian Affairs founded additional boarding schools based on the assimilation model of the Carlisle Indian Industrial School. 
school. Children were usually immersed in European-American culture through appearance changes, with haircuts, were forbidden to speak their native languages and traditional names, were replaced by new European-American names to both civilize and Christianize. The experience of the schools was often harsh, especially for the younger children who were separated from their families. In numerous ways, they were encouraged or forced to abandon their Native American identities and cultures. Investigations of the later 20th century have revealed many documented cases of sexual, manual, physical, and mental abuse occurring at such schools. And that's a very innocuous uh, description of the history of boarding schools. And uh, now I uh, welcome Rika and Eagle. And um, perhaps, Eagle, you can begin by explaining what the deeper purpose of these schools were within um, an understanding of sovereignty, why it was so important to uh, to do this to um, the children? Well, it was to um, break the clan system because there was strength with the families together as clans. But um, the, I would like to hear from uh, Rika um, and the people that, you know, experienced and the effects first just to listen in to what they have to say. Well, absolutely. Rika, where shall we begin? Okay, um, I want to start by um, saying that uh, the early, like, 60s when this school, St. Paul's Indian Mission, was built down here, it was solely a Catholic boarding school with their churches, their buildings, everything that they taught, Everything they taught was, um, it was, uh, St. Paul's Indian Mission was such a great and fine school. Nobody in the state of South Dakota could beat it. Nothing. The track was good. The Everything, the, um, the ac- academics, everything that goes into education system here at St. Paul's Indian Mission was the best. So these children that have graduated from here, some of them are really smart and intelligent. They have degrees. They're so cool. They're so fine. But there's those of us that were, um, I don't know, I, I want to say caught in the system as far as uh, physical, emotional, and sexual abuse. And so um, we were forgotten. Um, all these years we were forgotten. And um, something had come up. One of my relatives said, well, I want you to meet these attorneys because they want to talk about your experience in St. Paul's Indian Mission. So I went blank. I couldn't remember nothing. I mean, for days, for months, I couldn't remember anything. And then um, after talking to those attorneys one night, my friend, his name is Gary Fisher. He's a legal um, consultant from Los Angeles, and they formed this group. And so we got together and we started going around because the majority of the students that went to St. Paul's Indian Mission were kind of local but they also sent, there were five different states that these Indian children were bused in or driven in by their parents. Either how, or either way, they got there, they got there, they were there. 
And a lot of us were just babies. I mean, six years old, seven years old. I mean, we were just babies ripped from our parents' arms almost just to drop us off there, you know, not knowing what to expect. None of that. Not. I mean, <laughs> it's beyond me why that school was even there. But anyway, um, this is we we all went there. We were, I mean, with the federal government, it took an active role in the um, in the in a part as far as uh having the children uh, taken away, and you know, in, in that it took away um, our like I said, our our psychological, our spiritual, and our um, physical. Uh, I uh, that's what they took from us. They they erupted our our homes our lives with our parents, a lot of them had to go, and a lot of them had to stay there the whole year because their parents couldn't come here because they couldn't afford it. And so a lot of times some of the children stayed here all year round. And so those that had to stay here majority of the year round, those were the ones that were abused. Um, I was lucky. Um, My mother and father, they would come after me on the weekends, and so I would go home. But the weekday we stayed there. So uh, whatever went down, sometimes I would stay there. It wasn't every weekend I got to go home either. So um, in those times, it was lonely. And um, even though we were um, forced to go to church, all this, and believe in, in um, their way, it wasn't, we didn't feel right. It wasn't right for us, but um, it was forced on us, so we had to deal with it. But um, it's it's scary. It's really scary because... Um, I would really like to get get a hold of some of the people that went to school, graduated from here, and see how they're doing. And they're probably really doing good, because like I said, they Marty St. Paul did a mission. They turned out some really intelligent men and women. They they're super. I know a lot of them, and I also know a lot of the ones that were abused. So there was kind of like this thing they were saying. Well, how can that didn't happen because these people are good. These priests and nuns, they're good people. That didn't happen, or didn't happen to them. But those of us that it happened to, we have a story to tell. And I know now being a grandparent that it's really hard to say it because you don't want your grandchildren to know it. You don't want your family to know it, what you've been through. I mean, in my case, it was quiet all these years. And it just came out back in 2004. Um, it was in a newspaper about someone out, west, out east, how they had been abused at a Catholic boarding school. And so we picked up our, our, after that, it was like, wow, someone's really saying something about what happened to them with the Catholic boarding schools. And so we got together, and um, it, it just took off. It was great. It was fun for me because I met a lot of these people. And then it was hard because, like I said, they're grandparents now, and it's hard for them to say things like that in front of their families and and even now today, a lot of them that were involved in our lawsuit, they don't want to say nothing anymore. I mean, they're it, it, it's kind of like they're done, you know. But uh, I've, I'm finding out now that in my case, um, we have an attorney, and his name is Gregory Yates out of Rapid City and, Flo- and California, and he, they're still working on a case to find a loophole in a bill, House Bill 2, Zero seven that the um, legislatures had put a stop to our um, lawsuit right then and there, right in front of us. We couldn't say anything. We could, I, I elbowed my attorney. I was like, get up and say something. He's like, I can't say nothing. He said, oh, I was so upset. 
because the legislatures, there are seven of them, and they all spoke on behalf of, um, uh, their, one got up and said, why, I'm offended, I'm a Catholic church. Um, why didn't they accuse the Presbyterians or the Lutherans? I'm like, well, you know what, if that's the case, there's probably people out there, because those Catholic, or not the Catholics, but the Lutherans or Presbyterians, they all came to different Indian families around here, and they probably did the same thing they did to us, but those people aren't going to say anything. So I'm like, wow, it's so crazy how they're not going to say nothing after all these years when now it's out there and we have that chance to say it. It's just, I think we all should be outraged myself, but it ain't that way. I'd like to put it into perspective um, from um, a book by Meredith Quinn called The Great Matriarch. And this is on um, page, begins on page 30 and 31. He's talking about uh, Harold L. Ix and the Indian Reorganization Act of 1934. And I'll read this section to let listeners know the horrors that um, were documented. It was in the late 1930s, before 1939, that 11- and 12-year-olds held a physical confrontation with school officials. And when Harold Ix arrived, he was surprised to learn that these small children did not care if the Justice Department opened fire on them with weapons. Mr. Ix met with leaders of these small children that included the grandson, Meredith Quinn, and was even more surprised to learn that if the Justice Department did not kill them, school officials would. Mr. Ix asked for the reasons how this would come about, and this is what he heard. One, one had to learn to speak the English language in 30 days or receive a beating that often killed you. Two, one could not pray to the creator, great spirit, and world maker, and if caught, one received the same kind of beating. Three, the children did not like to stand at attention while a friend was being beaten, many times already dead, but the school official kept on beating the friend because his body kept jerking. Four, school officials were finding too many reasons to beat a student, and it was decided by the small children that everybody was going to die, so to die fighting was better than a beating. Harold Ix, as the Secretary of the Interior, made the following deals with these children. One, there would never be another beating in any school as long as the student lived or his children. Two, that these school officials would be removed, but the students were not to tell anyone the names of these school officials who beat their friends to death. It was after the children understood the conditions did they lay down their weapons these were 11- and 12-year-olds who came to die. The grandson remembers this day well as he sat on the lap of Harold Ix, looking at his big hands that had red hair and freckles. Mr. Ix asked the grandson what other things could be done to make this school better. The grandson was too scared to answer. 
Excuse me if I cry. Excuse me if I cry because it's so true. I mean, you know, things like that happen. And when you tell somebody they don't believe it, it even if a child tells their parent that their boyfriend or even their dad had raped them or did something to them, a lot of times adults don't believe that that kind of um, wording, you know? It's hard for them to believe it. And... um. In my case, it's like, well, they're Catholic priests and nuns. They don't do that. They're good people. They're good people. But they're not. I mean, in that case, that Mr. X, I mean, that's just <laughs> one of many, you know, one of many people who were abu- who were abusers. Yes. Yes. Well, and... um she still um, sent uh, a letter. This is part of his keynote address on healing the intergenerational impact of sexual abuse at the first international indigenous sexual abuse conference, February 13th, 2003, in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. And... Um, if you guys don't mind, Rika and Eagle, I'll I'll read some of this, not all of it. Okay. <clears throat> My very beloved relatives, with a grateful heart, I want to extend a warm, respectful, and loving greeting to each of you who have gathered here from the four directions to further unite, deepen, expand, and empower the healing and transformation process of our indigenous peoples and communities. It is a great honor and inspiration to be with you as we fulfill the sacred prophecies of the wise visionaries and spiritual leaders of all our tribes and nations. These ancient prophecies promised that after a very long, difficult, and painful winter time, our indigenous peoples would fully arise from the ashes of our suffering and play a great role in the spiritual transformation of the entire human family. Some years ago, a beloved tribal grandmother asked me a deep and soul-searching question. Grandson, she asked me, what is the most sacred, the most powerful, the most holy of all ceremonies? With some pride, I began to recount some of the traditional tribal ceremonies that I had participated in over the years. After I was finishing, finished describing the sun dance, the sweat lodge, vision questing, and other ceremonies I had participated in, she said, Grandson, those are all very sacred, powerful, and holy ceremonies, but the most sacred, the most powerful, the most holy of all ceremonies is the birth of a child. Then she looked very, very deeply into my eyes and soul and said, Then who are you? This beloved grandmother strongly reminded me that this very holy and intimate ceremony and creative power that ignites human life is equally sacred and must be respected at all times. My relatives, it is very clear from the widespread sexual abuse, including the increasing sexual abuse of children, incest, pornography, rape, child and adult prostitution, HIV, AIDS, and gang rape found within our communities 
that when this creative power and sacred expression of life is abused in any manner, the very foundation of ourselves and our communities is damaged and destroyed, sometimes for generations. Through this heartbreaking abuse, our trust, faith, and belief in ourselves, our loved ones, our communities, and life itself is broken. Our innermost purity, innocence, and unconditional love is brutally and shamefully betrayed and violated. We become our own abusers and the abusers of others. We become isolated and alone. We are filled with fear and shame. We no longer care if we live or die. Some of us even chose suicide rather than live any longer in the intense and overwhelming pain and suffering that seems to have no end. This is what has happened to many of us gathered here today, our loved ones and countless others who feel hopeless, alone, and in deep pain and suffering <coughs> throughout our sacred lands. True. And um, the reason we're bringing this up in a conversation on residential boarding schools is because this was a site of the commencement of this abuse. And, um, <coughs> excuse me. And then he, uh, he says, both my parents attended residential schools. As a result of their abusive experiences in residential schools and the world they grew up in, I also experienced physical and emotional abuse growing up as a child. By the time I was 12, I had become so physically and emotionally tough that when I cut the meaty part of my hand almost to the bone with an axe, I felt no pain. I was so proud of myself for being able to go beyond the pain that I walked up to my father and said with a big smile, I cut myself. When the doctors sewed me up, I refused to take anything for pain so I could show my father how tough I had become. Because of their own experiences and teachings growing up, my parents never discussed anything sexual with me or my sister. When I asked my parents where a baby came from, it took months for them to give me some sort of vague answer. At 12, with no real understanding of sexuality, an older boy from the European tribes, who I deeply trusted and admired, got me drunk for the first time and sexually abused me. Afterwards, I became so angry, drunk, and sick that I tore up the basement he abused me in, vomited everywhere, and eventually passed out. I realize now that, in a way, this was my first act of protesting and showing resistance against sexual abuse. The next day, the older boy, who I loved and admired so very much, completely rejected me. This experience of sexual abuse at the beginning of my life as a young man hurt me very, very deeply. As I understood more and more the reality of what had happened to me, combined with intergenerational trauma and the impact of the sick, racist, materialistic world that surrounds us, my shame, fear, self-hatred, rage, and anger grew stronger and stronger. As a young man, I abused myself with alcohol and drugs. I would strike out with violence if I felt the slightest disrespect. One time, I beat up a six-foot-five, 
U.S. Marine who had just returned from the Vietnam War so badly that they had to remove his eye. Since everyone present witnessed that he started the fight, I was exonerated of any responsibility for the result of my actions. I had abusive and unhealthy relationships with women. Sometimes I didn't care if I lived or died because I felt so ashamed, fearful, unworthy, and untrusting. I was unable to have trusting, honest, warm, and loving relationships with others. I couldn't talk to anyone about any of my feelings. The only thing that saved me from a painful, premature death was the spiritual and cultural teachings, prophecies, and stories of the greatness of our indigenous peoples that were shared with me by my beloved parents, elders, extended family, and loved ones, as well as learning about the spiritual teachings and prophecies of the great spiritual teachers who have always guided the human family. Although our family was impacted by intergenerational trauma in some parts of our life, I was very, very fortunate never to hear my father raise his voice to my mother, hit her, or even swear in her presence. I also have always known deep in my heart that my parents have always loved my sister and I more than life itself. Um, I'll go on, if you don't mind. Through these spiritual influences in 1968, in the darkest heart of my suffering, I had a spiritual experience that inspired and empowered me to free myself from my self-destructive addictions and to do all I could to serve the people and the Creator. During this time of spiritual renewal, I met a beautiful and deeply spiritual woman who I believed I would be with forever. We had a beautiful wedding, and for two years, our life together was filled with great spiritual love, unity, growth, and beauty. In our mutual desire to be of service to indigenous people and the human family, we left our jobs, our home, and all our possessions and traveled to Bolivia. We found Bolivia to be a sacred land filled with millions of indigenous relatives of great spiritual strength, understanding, and wisdom. In a way, it was like going back in history when our own indigenous peoples of North America retained our spiritual purity, innocence, and unified strength. I never wanted to leave, but Creator had another plan. Every morning I would pray and meditate for an hour. Understanding that forgiveness was a primary key to my healing, I began to pray fervently to the Creator to learn to be forgiving. After two months of praying with all my heart, to learn to be forgiving. My beloved wife was brutally raped by the drunken son of a wealthy Bolivian family known for their longtime brutality and abuse of indigenous peoples. Even though I confronted him shortly after the rape and he was arrested, because of the wealth and power of his family and the corrupt justice system, he was eventually set free. It was through this experience I realized that along with our own hurt, pain, and rage, we also carry the hurt, pain, and rage of our ancestors. For when this happened, it seemed like the unresolved hurt, pain, and rage of a thousand generations came boiling up inside me. My faith in the Creator was shattered. I spoke to the Creator with great anger and bitterness. I tried with all my heart to serve the people 
and fulfill your sacred teachings. How could you allow my beloved wife to be brutally raped? What did she do to deserve this brutal attack on her sacredness as a woman and a human being? In the end, her relationship was destroyed by this brutal act of rape and all the pain and hurt that comes with such an experience. To all my relatives here today that have also suffered from rape and other abuse, I want you to know from the bottom of my heart that I stand with you and will support you in all your efforts for justice and healing, together through our unified prayers and the power and strength of our Creator. We will live to see the day, either in this world or the world to come, when rape and other forms of abuse will be completely eliminated from our sacred lands forever. It was through this very painful and heartbreaking experience of rape and other abuse I have faced in my life that the Creator taught me some very important spiritual principles. Be careful what you pray for. The Creator will always answer your prayers. Sometimes the answer will come in ways we don't expect, but the Creator will never give us a test we can't pass as long as we keep praying and remain faithful. The only one who can teach the person with the whip what true love and forgiveness are about is the person being whipped. When we ask the Creator for strength, we will receive tests and difficulties to make us strong. When we ask for wisdom, the Creator will give us many problems to solve. When we ask for great courage, the Creator will give us heroic obstacles to overcome. If it were not for tests, how would the courageous be distinguished from the cowardly? Without tests, how would the precious diamond be distinguished from the worthless pebble? For we cannot not be a good leader of warriors unless we have been in front of the fiercest battles and received the deepest wounds. Our wise spiritual leaders have always taught us, do you think you can say you believe in the Creator and will not be tested? For when the cry of truth is raised, so is the cry of denial. Hmm. You know, that's a, that's a really sad story. I don't know um, how somebody can overcome all of that. Um, but those of us, I myself, when I was um, abused here at this Catholic boarding school, all those years I just put it in the back of my mind I never dealt with it, and I was wondering, why am I a drunk? Why am I a drug addict? Why am I doing all this? Why am I in and out of jail? Why don't I love my children? What am I doing? What did I do? Mm -hmm. And then in 2004, when this, whatever it was that struck me, after they asked about the um, the uh, abuse or however I was, it was at St. Paul's Indian Mission, it was like the next night, like something came out of me. It, it was really weird. It was like, I was laying down, and I could feel like a vibration. And first it was in my feet, and then it got to my body, and then it got to my head, and it was like, it was really weird, and all of a sudden it was just like gone. And I sat up, and it was like, wow. For some reason, I had felt really good because that same night, after all these years of not talking about what happened to me, 
I wrote it down on a piece of paper. Now, I didn't tell anybody all those years. I didn't tell. Yeah, I didn't even tell those attorneys until I wrote it down on that paper what had happened to me. And when I did that that same night, man, it was a relief. I, I never realized ever in my whole life until then why I drank, why I didn't love my children, why I was doing this, why I was doing all the bad things. And and um, I never ever thought about suicide once though, not ever. I, I just always wondered why I didn't love my children and why I was doing what I was doing. When I found out, it was like, I don't know, it, was, it just made me feel good that whatever it was was gone, and now I'm a better mother, and I'm a better, I'm a, a wonderful grandmother. My children, grandchildren love me. I'm the best for them, and I want it that way. I want it to stay that way, you know? And the people that went through the physical abuse, the sexual abuse, the emotional abuse, it's really hard. Uh, like you said, suicide, I, I want to bring that up. That's involved. That's involved in what, what what happened to us. A lot of them just kill themselves. They they can't deal with it. And now, you know, when this was going on, we were being put in boarding schools. Our families were being put on reservations. And, you know, when they were being put on reservations, like I said, those other religions, they were coming around. They were coming to the outside people that didn't go to the boarding school. And so it's like, you know something had to happen to those other families and their children because they're not talking about it. But those of us that went to Catholic boarding school, even a lot of them there, they, they won't talk about it. But those of us that are and those of us that can find healing however we find it, to know why we were the way we were and the way it is now. And um, it's like the council, our councils, they, they don't have the right defenses to defend their people, I mean, it's crazy. It, it, it just drives me crazy why it's our our um, leaders are so weak. They don't stand up enough for the people. They don't. Are you there, Rika? I'm here. Okay. And I'd like to welcome Chief Phil. He's oh. joined us. Welcome, Phil. Good good uh, afternoon there. You know, we had a power outage here, and I, I you couldn't reach me by phone, and I couldn't uh, phone out or or uh, use my computer. So my apologies. And Hunkashi, I just put a big, big hug to you there for all that you had to go through and, and all you've had to endure and so forth. You know, uh, um, you know, here, here as well in Canada, of course. Um, f- thankfully, we were able. Uh, over 21 years it took to finally at least get some resolution to what happened here. Uh, we're literally, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of children. It's documented were really brutally sexually abused, uh, uh, physically abused. Uh, starved, um, uh, you know, of course, all would have their heads shaven. They'd have needles stuck through their tongue for speaking their own language or or their mouth washed off out with a really heavy soap for speaking their own language. They were scalded. Um, they were, in one place even, they used electric shock on the children. Uh, they've also uncovered uh, many graves of children who died uh, at the boarding schools, who 
never got a chance to return home. Uh, you know, they were stuck inside the walls. They have torn, torn some of these boarding schools. They found little babies uh, stuck into the walls, literally, uh, where, they, where they aborted the children who uh, came from being aborted, I mean, being impregnated by by priests and, and other religious clergy. Because here uh, you had uh, both uh, Catholic and Episcopal boarding schools, as well as uh, some Presbyterian boarding schools as well. And uh, it really, there wasn't much difference between what happened. In fact, there wasn't a difference between what happened in Episcopal or Catholic schools uh, here or um, Presbyterian boarding schools. It's like it's, they were written out of the same book, and that is how do you destroy a people? Um of course, now if you look at at uh, in the U.S., you had uh, uh, large Catholic, uh, large um, uh, government schools like Haskell, Carlisle, Shalako, uh, um, uh, Brigham City, uh, 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 you know, uh, Indian School. Um, you had um, uh, government-run schools, and then you ha- also had, uh, of course. Uh, as uh, you had there at Marty, uh, Catholic, and other religious-run boarding schools, Episcopal uh, boarding schools. But, uh, f- you know, in terms of, of abuse, this certainly happened all over the United States. But, um, you know, the United States government has a uh, provision legally that unless they agree to it, you can't sue them, because after we started... Um, uh, you know, the, the, uh, well, it's been, let's see, it's, this has been resolved for some, not resolved completely, but it's been, there was a big settlement here, $3.5 billion, uh, went to the survivors. Uh, in fact, every single, uh, every single, uh, person who went to a boarding school was compensated, uh, just right off the top of the, uh, right off the top of the, the deal uh, right off the top of the settlement. And that, of course, took a lot of fighting for years. We had to fight. Um, I mean, at first, they were going to, uh, uh, I call it kind of a meat chart. Uh, they were going to use a regular courtroom uh, where you have adversarial lawyers. Uh, they were going to literally, uh, if you'd been sexually abused, you would have to describe each time you were sexually abused, how you were sexually abused, how many times you were sexually abused, and based on, um, you know, if you were sodomized one time or if you were sodomized ten times, then how many times you were sodomized, that's, you get a little bit more money for each time you're sodomized or each time you're raped or the, the nature of the rape. And so, you know, it was, it was I mean, they had turned this into... Uh, something that was so horrendous for the uh, victim. I mean, that it just, and they were ready to accept this. I remember real clearly at this national meeting. Um, But um, we we were able to turn that around and, and, uh, you know, address it. And we had one of the attorneys that we worked very close with come down um, this was, 
uh, in the late 80s come down and try every way they could to find a way to, um, uh, particularly because of Marty, I have to say, because I, I was Marty is something I've heard about uh, um, for a while. The school that Rico went to. Yes. Yep. Huh? The school that Rika yes. went to. Yes, absolutely. Yes, and my Hunkashi went there and, and many other. But uh, I first really heard about that from a Tahashi who was, who was sexually abused by the, the priest, really sexually abused the boys there. The problem would happen oh, you don't in these schools. It. Oh, yeah. I mean, people I don't mean, they, that happen. They're like, how did that don't uh, happen? These are good Oh no! It's, it's it's it's. I mean, that doesn't mean that every single priest and every single nun. But but the, don't worry, the nuns at every one of these schools in here in Canada, unless they were completely different. But I found the same behavior in the in the church-run schools. The same behaviors occurred, uh, unless there were very very uh, strict oversight. Uh, and uh, you know, although there was a lot of instances at St. Elizabeth's on the on the Standing Rock at Wakpala, um, you know, there, um, you know, we looked at that very carefully. And although there was it was very kind of strict, uh, we found no uh, abuse going on there like other schools. But it was a smaller school; it was run by uh, uh, Lakota Dakota people themselves, and. Uh, um, uh, but I have to say, at most every school, this happened, and I know this happened to to my Tanshi. I know it happened to other males there. And this is it was just plain sexually abused directly by the priests. And by the way, nuns were not nuns. Also, sexually abused boys and girls. This this mm-hmm. this yeah. this idea that somehow another these things didn't happen is just simply simply a denial. People are in denial about that. Yeah, they don't believe it because it's so horrible. I mean, it's horrible to tell someone, especially if you're a man, to tell someone that that happened to you. I'm like, wow, I give these men that can stand up and say what happened to them like that in front of people. I I just want to hug them and I just want to say, oh, thank you. It's so, it makes me... As a better, I mean, it makes me a better person knowing that they're able to tell what happened to them and then deal with the problem and get to be a better person with a better life. And, yep. um, and uh, I was just going to mention that, Phil, that uh, yes, it's just brother, just brother Phil. I just wanted to fine. let you know, brother, brother Phil, I just wanted to let you know in case you didn't hear. I read the beginning of your sexual abuse speech up to the part about um, why spiritual leaders have always taught us. Um, do you think you can believe in the Creator and will not be tested for when the cry of truth is raised? So is the cry of denial. So I, I pretty much read your speech up till to that point. Yes. So listeners are. Yeah. Well, it was it was my own sexual abuse that that I that I, you know I had to you have to address this because if if you don't um, if you can feel it my dad used to tell me son if you can feel it you can heal it if you can talk about it 
you could understand it. And, you know, this sexual abuse that happened to me when I was just uh, 13 years old, this had a big, big impact on my life. I was 12 or 13. Um, this had a big impact on me. And, um, um, you know, thankfully later, um, about four years after that, I was able to confront the person um, who abused me. It was somebody I, I knew that I had... Uh, uh, I'd grown up with. I mean, he'd been an older, an older boy around me in my life, and that was the, That's the big problem. Um, in in a school that was right where I taught at a university in in southern Al, southern Alberta, uh, it was amazing because what happens is that when the boys were sexually abused, and this happened to be uh, this coach that was there, the head of the athletic school, they even named the gym after the guy. Um, uh, they even named the gym after the one that was sexually abusing the boys because you see uh, what would happen is you're so ashamed of of this abuse and then they, they, these, these uh, uh, pedophiles, they're really gifted at getting this thing hidden and so what they did was they would get they would sexually abuse other boys, younger boys, and then they get the other boys. I mean, the, the, first of all, the priests or the nuns or whatever would encourage, in a way, the the the, the children they abused to abuse other children. And so, what you had was you had um, this conspiracy of silence, and then the ones that were kind of the the bigger bullies who would sexually abuse the other boys, then they became very powerful figures on the tribal council. Even some of them became chiefs there and here in Canada. The chairperson is called a chief. Um, um, and they then would, would hire the ones they abused to keep this quiet. And it was really quite, quite a mess. Uh, and that what, is what happened. And so what happens is on our reservations and reserves in Canada, the United States, and, you know, it, it's something still we're having to deal with because what happens is, is that, you know, you have abusers who kind of keep this conspiracy of silence or you have one of your relatives who was abused uh, and then they end up abusing and maybe abusing family members and then yeah. you know people are in denial they don't they they want to cover up for the abuser because it's so shameful and yeah. uh um so the cycle continues it goes on now i don't know uh Hunkashi, if that's true uh down 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 there at home or not still but um you know back behind the scenes there's a lot of this stuff still being covered up still not being yeah. exposed because relatives, you know, but that's my relative. So I can't say anything against my relative or my relative. Oh, uh, it's better to, to, to keep the can of worms, not open the can of worms, but we got to clean this out because it's responsible for lots of suicides. We had all kinds of suicides here in Canada as we tried to work through this issue. 
because once all people would would bring this out and then the other side of the family would say, no, it's not true, or they didn't know this person didn't rape you. No, they couldn't do this to the child. And they go back and forth. And then people just would have so much pain, they'd just kill themselves. Yeah, you know, that's just a lot of more people that went to their death with um, a, a, a secret that they probably would have never told anybody. And so um, when that that happened with the um, suicides, um, people wonder why it, what happened, but usually it's a sexual abuse that happens to them. And alcohol is always involved, always, always. Yes, yes. Yes, absolutely, and then, and then so many relatives uh, uh, died from alcoholism. That was another thing that happened. I mean, uh, alcoholism, drug abuse, whatever, and then this is inter- intergenerational as well. I mean, the hurt of one is the hurt of all, and the honor of one is the honor of all. That hurt yeah. gets passed on generation to generation. Yes, absolutely. In my family, it's that way, you know. Um, I, sometimes I feel like I shouldn't even say anything because I have some brothers that are in prison for um, sexual abuse. But in my case, my brother's case, their their um, stories, my um, the family members were the ones that were involved. But um, as they got older, they um, recanted their statements, and now my brother is still fighting every day for their lives in prison for something that they didn't do. And um, it's like uh, with the family, it's kind of kept quiet with each other. Um, but we all know one thing for sure, and that's that their uncles, my brothers, they're saying now that it didn't happen. And so with those girls and boys being as old as they are now and having children of their own, they um, they love their uncles. They're like, that didn't happen, Mom. That didn't happen, Auntie. We were, um, they were... At that time, alcohol was so bad in my family that um, we all kind of lost our minds. And uh, all during that time, we love our children, but you can't love them enough because alcohol is more important. But right, I mean, I have to say it. I have to say what happened to me because otherwise, I wouldn't be able. I probably would have been dead, and I wouldn't be able to live with myself. I wouldn't love my family the way I do now. Because I know now what happened to me, so in my case, I am a better grandmother and a better mother for it after yes. I, I was able to set it out. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's important to remember but, that only abused people abuse people. Only hurt people hurt people. And this is why at Alkali Lake, which kind of led the sobriety movement up here in Canada, uh, they had a lot of that happen underneath the surface. But, you know, they set up processes up here uh, where communities are, are held. I mean, re, I mean, I mean, a relative just doesn't go out and sexually abuse a niece or a nephew or uh, rape somebody or whatever. I mean, you're going to find, I would say, in practically any case of this where the person doing this has been abused as a child already. And it just yeah. sets up a pattern. So this is where this is where the the bringing back of the hoop, uh, you know, healing the hoop of the seven council fires, or healing the hoop of of any of our First Nations or, or tribes or nations, 
it's going to take so much forgiveness because we have to realize this for a lot of the young people, this happened as children. I mean, when they were encouraged to sexually abuse other children or they sexually abused or abused other children, they were children. And then later, of course, that behavior continued as adults. But this is where uh, we have to know that when this happens, uh, these relatives just don't do it out of the clear blue sky. I mean, uh, um, it just doesn't, it just, it is, it is the most shameful thing in, in talking to and knowing now a lot of the, the abusers who have now stepped out and have accepted their abuse and their abusing, and they've become tremendous healers. Um, uh, and they've been able to come out in their communities and be reaccepted and re, uh, um, uh, come back again and be a good relative. That's tough, though. Yes, it's good to be a leader. Um, it's good to be a leader, but if you are the abuser and you don't have no conscience and no shame, then you don't need to be a leader. Come on. Go outside. That's right. You've got to face it. Yeah, That's you've got to right. face You're very it. Right. Eagle, are you still with us? Eagle, are you still with us? Okay. I I just, I want to, for a moment, put this in perspective of, again, the purposeful destruction of uh, indigenous sovereignty. And I'm going to read uh, something brief from um, the great matriarch by Meredith Quinn that will give listeners an idea of how um, purposeful the destruction and perversion of um, Lakota, Dakota, Nakota, and all tribal um, people has been. And it may sound odd, but this is from Meredith Quinn's The Great Matriarchy, The Great Matriarch, page 9. An occult science and religion does a perpetual prayer called the Prayer of Atlantis every day at a given time so the Time Walker Society will never again reawaken on Indian reservations. Another white worldwide religious organization performs a song called the Song of St. John the Divine or Pandora's Jar of Plagues every full moon so the dance and songs of creation would never be performed by Indian tribes. Why, Eagle, are, is the traditional religion so threatening to um, these people who forced this religion and brought all of this abuse to the Americas? What what is what's going on here in the larger picture, if you don't mind? Well, simply put, there is power in spiritual practices, ceremonies done at the correct times, appointed times, and things like that. It's not it may sound strange, I guess. It, it's not hocus pocus. If you do the right things at the right times, you can command things to happen. Controlling the forces of nature, for example, the 
grandmothers had the powers to control the forces of nature to keep the peace. For example, in the European white man's, they talk of witches, and witches cast spells, and see how they cast spells to bring up the seas, sink ships, different kinds of things. Well, what they're showing you there is the clan mothers, we're talking about clan mothers, the abilities to control the forces of nature. The reason that they, they, they do that is because until they ran into the North American Indian, they'd never been defeated with their own spiritual practices against other peoples. So they, once they ran into your, your spiritual practices and they couldn't defeat you with theirs, uh, they had to come and this is what they came up with. They've been doing that ceremony for over 500 years. Like every day did the second kind of thing, synchronized, you know, prayer in every full moon. Lots of stuff people don't know. Because spiritual practices have powers, whether they basically answer to that question. And your true original religion the create a great spirit and the matriarchal system of government has power, literally. And why they came to it, because if you're not believing in your original religion, then you're no longer one of the original Indians. You don't have that sovereignty, you don't have that power. Yes, you know that's one of the reasons why creating this um, grandmother um, circle is be it, it's good because, like I said before, our leaders they don't have that. I, I don't know what it is. It, it, it's like a they don't have a strong defense to go against, say, the state or the federal government because the federal government's always sending lies on down saying all your funding this year is not going to be enough, as much as it was last year. And the leaders go, oh, okay, well, great. You know, I mean, they don't have, there's no defense. They don't say, well, this is how it has to be because our families are getting bigger, our, our tribe is getting bigger, and we can't have a smaller um, uh, um, amount of money coming in. We have to have more. But they don't say that. They're like, okay, all right. You know, I mean, in, in anything, in any case, our defense from a tribal, our tribal government here is not strong enough. And so... With the grandmothers that, in my case, that have um, been physically and sexually abused, they're the strong ones. They're the one that want to get rid of the meth. They're the one that want to get rid of the alcohol, the sexual abuse, all of that. Yes. Well, I think as well, yeah, I think as well, this has to, we have to really recognize this was very this was not some accident that happened this was a very very key part of federal policy this the destruction yes. of the traditional kinship system was a very very uh clear calculated. policy calculated yeah. it was not something that just happened i mean i'm in canada they had a um the head of the of the uh, uh, I guess you, there they call it uh, they have different names but the 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 Bureau of uh, Indian Affairs or the Department of Indian Affairs um, he he made a statement this was in the early 1920s he said did I say the Indian problem there will be no Indian problem in in uh, 
uh, uh, two decades because there will be no more Indians. This was the purpose to de- completely destroy the kinship system and any kind of traditional leadership so that uh, they could take the land and could, quote-unquote, yeah. civilize the children. So this was not any accident. And that's why the government of Canada had to take the responsibility they did, ultimately, when thousands and thousands and thousands of, of cases came up, finally, and uh, class action suits and so forth. Uh, they had to take responsibility because it was clear. It, this was a clear pattern. And by the way, everything that Canada learned about how they were able to colonize indigenous people, uh, Aboriginal people, Native Americans, however you want to call it, in Canada came directly from watching how the U.S. did it. So, for instance, the U.S. had big, big, heavy, uh, large schools like uh, Haskell, Haskell Institute, where both my mother and father went. They had Carlisle, Chamawa, um, you know, other big schools. And so what they did there uh, in large reservations where they'd put, they thought by putting two or three different tribes or one or two different tribes together, they would fight each other or they'd already create this this, uh, uh, fighting among each other because disunity, they knew if they could somehow disunify indigenous people or tribes or nations, First Nations, they could take them down. And so in Canada, what they did was they realized, oh, this is not a good deal to have big, big reservations. So they broke them up into much smaller, smaller communities where the the, the different religious groups uh, and uh, could keep the people oppressed more. Um, um, but it was very conscious. This was not a, it was not a, and then the other thing is they covered it up. There was cover-ups. I mean, very conscious cover-ups. And I think if they ever completely, you know, are able, let's say at Marty, if they really got down to it and they got were able to get the whole story, the whole picture, you'd find where people did try to stand up and say something. But they were, they were shut up. They covered it up. Again, I mean, that's something people have to know who went to school there. I, don't, I, I can't say that, but I can tell you from the patterns of so many schools. I, were, I mean, I worked with thousands of survivors during this time and, you know, went out to many different places across Canada. And it, the pattern was, it was like amazing. It was like it was written out of the same book, whether they were Episcopal or Catholic schools. That's how I feel. I mean, so are these residential schools, are any of them still going on? No, I think they closed a lot a few years ago. I, I think the, the Shamawa, yeah, Shamawa in, in Salem, Oregon, uh, is still in operation. Um, um, and, and, and the reason why is, by the way, the tribes, the tribes there operate these schools, is you have these intergenerational situations where you have young people who uh, whose parents and grandparents were sexually abused or physically abused or most certainly psychologically, emotionally abused. Uh, I mean, the, the, there, there's a thing I sent to you 
called uh, a section called "What If the Holocaust Never Stopped." What, I hope you put up the website there, sister, uh, uh, because it it literally lays out all the different kinds of things that were done to the children physically, psychologically, uh, as children as a whole, and this happened, and and uh, it'll eventually. Uh, and hopefully, uh, people, people like Hunkashi uh, uh, will stand up and bring this out because that's why she's such a powerful force of healing, is because she's been able to address um, uh, this within her own self. Uh, rather than, and, and, and I just have wondered to myself how many relatives who are dead and buried from alcoholism or suicide, if we went back and really were able, and we will in the next world, in the other side camp, we'll get a chance to visit about this. But in this world, like like Kunkashi said, behind that alcohol, that person dying and that person relative walking along the road so so in, in such a uh, pitiful manner, in such a sad manner, that just didn't happen. That just, just doesn't come out of the sky. We're, each of us are born sacred beings. And so unless that sacredness and that beauty of who we are when we're born, unless something happens to that, it's not healed. It's not natural for somebody to, 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 to you know, commit, kill themselves. They have to be in incredible pain or to, to uh, sexually abuse others or to to do to, to just die at 40 years old. My cousin Sonny, um, uh, you know, in fact, a lot of my relatives are dead today from alcoholism. Um, and he, he was 30, 30, 30, 35 years old. By then, a chronic alcoholic, you know, died in the toilet when, when uh, he had a hemorrhage in his brain. I mean, uh, some things happened in there. But at the time, you know, yeah. it was all shut up. Well, that's why I say people that were abused, they need to stand up. And it hurts. Yes, it hurts. But when it comes out, when you finally get to say what happened to you, you feel so good. And then you get involved in your religions, your beliefs even more. And so then you love yourself more and you love your family more. It, it, it's that simple for me, it is, it wasn't, but it is now that way. But the guys that you see still that were at a Catholic boarding school and they're still alcoholics, they're still drug addicts, you want to talk to them and you want to help them, but it, you can't. I don't know. It, it's hard to, to, to help them. Yep, In, until they themselves, until they themselves... Uh, come to that place and, and it comes from really talking about it just like we are now I remember when we first made this film we made a film in, in um, uh, 1978 called Healing the Hurts and it's what really set off the whole residential school issue here in in Canada and we'd done another one called in 1985 we made a film called The Honor of All the Story of Alkali Lake which showed the we begin the movement towards ending alcoholism, and but we kept encountering uh, wherever we go, 
we'd get into the alcohol abuse, and underneath it, we'd find this residential school issue. So we finally had a workshop, and it so happened that the person, Phil Lucas, who made the story, the honor of all the story of Alkali Lake, um, Phyllis Chelsea called us from Alkali Lake and said, you know, well, let's make a film of this. And I said, well, you know, we only have two weeks before we're going to have this workshop with, with people who attended boarding schools in the United States and Canada. But, you know, the Alaska Native Health Board came came through with $25,000. We were able to pull a crew together, and we filmed it. And, and, by the way, I made that available without cost on Internet. It's called Healing the Hurts, and it gives you a first-hand look at when we first took the, the wound, pulled the, we might say, open opened, uh, uh, opened this wound. And there was a lot of people who just were infuriated because they had issues about this. I mean, they'd been caught up in sexually abusing others or they'd been sexually abused. And they said, I mean, they really attacked us. I mean, we were really attacked by, by people who later were, were the first ones there to receive the money when the money came through 21 years later. But at the time, they really, really uh, did not uh, did not approve of this. And why in the world, why are you opening this can of worms up? Why are you talking about this? This is dead. It's gone. But it's not dead and gone. It's still being it's still being played out every day. Now it's into the into our grandchildren and great grandchildren. It's not over until we clean it up. Oh, you're absolutely right. When you said that, that's what it's about. Yes, yes, it is. I'd like to just yeah. say on the. Um, like you were saying about how like it's calculated we touched on that I think right at the very beginning like the reason why of the taking the religion sort of thing and that was because of the uh, the residential school system was to break the clan system like you said the kinship system that was the clan uh-huh. like literally the clan system of living it, uh, and I was trying to remember which one of those early uh Prime Minister, Prime Ministers of Canada made that comment right about this, like to take the savage out of the Indian sort of thing, whatever, civilizing them. Yeah. Yeah. But it was exactly that. Also, Rika, um, regards to the tribal government, as you're talking about, you got to understand that that's not actually a tribal government. That's uh, basically it's the the what do you call it, the management board, if you like, of the corporation. Like chief executive oh, officer, chief. Yeah, you're right. You're absolutely right. Yeah, but I'm, you know, right. still, still in their capacity, they're not going to say or do nothing about it because um, I'm yeah. sure it probably happened to them. So it's a good thing that they don't say anything, I guess, and they probably don't want to bring it out because, like I said, it's really hard. It's really hard to let it go. You want to live with alcoholism, yeah. alcoholism and drug addiction all your life, then so be it. I mean, yeah, 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 yeah it's real. Um, but what they're talking about, like the grandmother. And... Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, no, I just just wanted to make this other thing for because we have a lot of our relatives who who uh, um, are what I would call truly, truly, truly are more, are way, 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 way more Christian than any of the Christians that ever came here. I can't even cannot dignify yeah. in any way, shape, or form what happened. 
calling it Christianity. This was churchianity. It had nothing to do with turn the other cheek. It had nothing to do with kindness and forgiveness and so forth. Uh, this had to do with people who were incredibly ushika. I mean, I mean, we're talking about people who are incredibly, incredibly spiritually ill, incredibly spiritually ill people. Um, uh, yep. Did these acts? I mean, and you have to be incredibly spiritually ill. I mean, really ill to sexually abuse yeah. children and do the things they did to the children, physically, emotionally, mentally. Uh, stripping them of, trying to strip them of, uh, uh, make them ashamed of their language, making them ashamed of the way they prayed, making them ashamed. This is not anything to do with being kind, turning the other cheek, being forgiving, uh, um, you know, treating your neighbor as yourself and so forth. This had nothing to do with it. The reason I'm going to say that is because I know I have a lot of relatives who, who, uh, because they destroyed, they destroyed every, tried to destroy all the cultural dimensions. Sometimes during that period of time, the only place they had to come together to speak the language or to just come together and be together was inside a church. And if they would have known this was happening to their grandchildren, I'll tell you what, you would have had hell to pay. Um, I mean, e even if they knew they were being physically abused, you would have had grandmothers out there. And in fact, the case, the case up at Standing Rock, where they had this DNS Baker. I'll tell you what, uh, Miss Buddy Knife, and her name happened to be named Buddy Knife. She had sl slapped her granddaughter, and when she found out, she came up there and she chased that doggone Deacon Baker with her hunting knife. She was in a killer. So you got to know mm -hmm. that uh, the way they did this is, uh, uh, you know, had the elders known this was going on, but they they buried it. They kept it. They they had ways that you can read about about what how pedophiles are. They're very 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 sick people. I I need yeah. need to put that in there so that we can differentiate. But people, I mean, I I don't see. I, I don't. When you treat other people like this, when you when you support war and support blowing people up all over the world, there, there has nothing to do with some this, this Christian idea. I, the what what the the kindness is supposed to be about Christianity. Now, people call themselves that. I don't. I can't dignify them by calling them that. I call them churchianity or somebody who is a complete hypocrite of their own faith. Yeah, that's true. That's why I always distinguish, I mean, as somebody who was born Hebrew um, and, you know, characterize myself as a scene because the early uh, people around that teacher, Yeshua, I mean, lived in community, kept the moon calendar, and were all wiped out in the first 200 years, you know. So, uh, yeah, the the usage of Christianity in world domination is not the teachings of that teacher at all. But right. back to, you know, Meredith Quinn used to say, you can't be in, uh, go to church on Sunday and be an Indian on Monday. And, 
that's something still. I mean, there are so many people in the community who are trying to do both. Mm-hmm. And we keep pointing out that that's really detrimental to sovereignty for the nation, besides for their own personal well-being. Well, yes. Um, that wasn't Meredith saying that. That was actually uh, came from a judge to uh, 65 Sioux Indians that were trying to claim sovereignty. And I think that's what he told me. You can't go to church on Sunday and be an Indian on Monday. Mm-hmm. That's a legal truth. See, what, what he's getting at there is the reason why you're behind the conversion, converting Indians. Because one, then, okay, if you're converting them, you're converting them from something. What are you converting them from? Your original religion, spiritual practices, and culture. The matriarchal system of government, clan mothers. And once you accept and call yourself, for instance, a Christian or a Roman Catholic, well, then you are no longer the original kind of Indian. Right. I get it. I get it. Right, because this is the thing, you see. A lot of people get confused about this word, religion. Religion, technically, as a term, means law. Whatever your religion is, that is your law. Mm. Which is why they wanted to convert you from your original, because your original is the supreme law of the land. It's the first law of the land. the system that was put here by the creator, created great spirit. That's why it's the supreme law of the land. Oh, I get it now. Right. Yep. See, that's if you look amongst nature, all the animal kingdoms, that's what you'll find, matriarchal systems. Queen bee, queen ant, horses, elephants. Yes. Deer, moose, elk, there even wolves, alpha female runs the pack. And that's why the word savage, why the Indians used to be called savages. See, most people think mm-hmm. that it's a derogatory term when actually it's not. It's the correct legal term for a sovereign Indian. Because savage comes from the word Silvictus. Silvictus means those who live amongst the trees. Yeah, and you know, lately a lot of our people are calling themselves that now, savage, instead of... uh, Yes, the the understanding of what it means is starting to get out there, right? Because this is the thing, we're talking right now in the English language, right? But when people communicate in this language on the street and how they understand words and what they mean and what those, what you might think is the same word in a courtroom setting, in a, you know, or on a contract setting, because that's what you're doing is contracting in court anyway. You're not talking words, you're talking terms. And terms is the exact, how it's defined legally exactly. And it means only that. So what I'm getting at is words and terms. One, some words can mean many different things, right? They can be expanded or contracted. Terms can't. That's why if you look at any legislation, it will say these terms. It's telling you these are special meanings then to whatever the words that follow. Sure. The legal meaning of the terms. Now I understand what you're saying, that part there. But in the the case that you said, the the judge said uh, 
don't be an Indian on Monday because you went to church on Sunday or whatever. That's like save the, uh, or kill the Indian, but save the man, right? That's... Yeah, kind of. But what, see, what, we, what he was saying is because these Indians were trying to claim to, that they were sovereign Indians. Mm-hmm. And what he pointed out to them is, well, you, you can't be sovereign Indians because you can't go to church on Sunday and be an Indian, sovereign Indian on Monday. Yeah, yeah. Your, your religion is your law. If you're claiming sovereign, well, that would be your religion. If you're claiming sovereignty. Mm-hmm. Well, I just have a question from someone here. Could you give a definition of sovereignty? Um, yes, exactly the same way Meredith does on the video. Sovereignty is clan mothers with a headsman chief to speak on her behalf and members of her, of her clan. Clans make up a tribe, and a tribe is a sovereign nation. If you look in Webster's 1828, look up the word tribe. Number five, a tribe is a nation of savages, it says. And this is the thing, you see, under international law, there are only three classes of physical beings, savages, persons, or inhabitants. That's the person. My little girl said, all humans, which is the person. Because a human being, if you call yourself a human being, then you're saying that you're a monster. So, as I'm saying, the the deception of the white man is the semantics. It's the meanings of the words, the true meanings, their legal meanings. Like even the saying, a human being, most people are conditioned to call themselves a human being. If you look at a Ballantine's Law Dictionary, third edition, human, C, as in look at, S-E-E, monster. So, three classes of physical beings, savages, persons, or inhabitants. Okay, as person, and there's, that's your average Joe on the street who doesn't know who he is. You have a subclassification of the person called the private person, which is your royalty in the civilized rule of law. Um, so, um, savage person, private person, which, and that's the royalty, the kings and queens of Europe, the different European countries, who are all Romans, if you follow their bloodlines, and then your inhabitant. So your inhabitant is a third world citizen, which is what a prisoner of war Indian on the reservation is, on the prisoner of war camp, because that is how you're technically classified right now if you're a treaty Indian. Mm. on the tribal enrollment list of one of those autonomous corporations. Yeah. So, as a signatory, though, that's the that's a sovereign Indian a signatory, what was known as a savage. Um, you have clan mothers, a head clan mother, who has a chief to speak on her behalf. This is the difference between the chiefs you have now, like of the those, they're through the democratic system, like the, the mob rule kind of thing majority vote, as opposed to where a head clan mother chooses who's going to, you know, fill the role to speak on her behalf kind of thing, right? Take care of the people. All of this was explained in that movie, Avatar. That whole movie, entirely from the very beginning to the very end, is all about international law. It's all about Indians. It's all about tribal custom and usage. Mm -hmm. 
Because if you look and you remember, they called them savages at the beginning of the movie. Savage, Silvictus, those who live amongst the trees. Uh-huh. Okay, so savages, where were those guys living? Oh, yeah. What kind of system were they? What was that? Those group that he ran to, it was a clan. And there was a chief. And the chief's main concern, he was always on the welfare of the people, right? That was his thinking, everything. But was he the boss? No. His wife, the head clan mother, was the boss, wasn't she? See, I'm explaining what I'm telling you is you can't ever say to the white man, you didn't tell us this, because they have. They show it to you through the movies every day. And they've openly told you that they'll communicate with you through the medium of theater, movie theaters, for instance, as well as news and things like that. (laughs) And also about the committing suicide and things like that, in the Dakota Proclamation, right near the back of the book, he explains about the, uh, they're very sophisticated in their, like, psychological abilities, like to mind control and stuff, people. He says they literally have, this is a little what they do on the Indian schools. There's four teams, team A, B, C, and D. And the first one, like, assesses the child, and the next one, where they're going to kind of work they're going to do and where they're going to live. Right through to the fourth one was like the termination squad, where they could make children commit suicide if they didn't get them sort of conformed to what they want them to do. Like, seriously, guys, there's so much more going on. Meredith, you know, he was a truly gifted old savage, very knowledgeable in many different areas. Primarily because he, he had teachings from his grandmother, who literally was the last head clan mother of the Dakota Indians. She lived on the Sisseton Wofferton Reservation in a big house and had sort of money and could command the white man to do things, and the Americans did it. Whereas the rest of the Indians on the reservation were living poor and penniless kind of thing, just like they do today. What was the difference? Well, his grandmother was a signatory Indian. She literally was a sovereign Indian. Whereas the rest of the Indians is the like can't go to church on Sunday and be an Indian on Monday, even though they're Indians. You're not Indians if you're a prisoner of war. Legally speaking, a sovereign Indian. What's the thing about? somebody. Hello. Lisa? Hello. Hello. You're on the air with us. Do you have a question or comment? Hello? No? Okay. Well, then I will use the caller. We're fine. Um, I'm sorry, Eagle. Um, go ahead and uh, Lisa. Um, we have two choices here, Eagle and, and Lisa. We have about half an hour left, and we can continue talking. Or um, and I also have 23 minutes of um, a conversation that I had with. Professor Victor Duville a few days ago, 
Uh, would you all like to hear that, or shall we continue? No, I, I'd like to hear it. Okay, yes. Well, um, hopefully, it'll be audible. It may be audible, you know, when we all go listen to the recording. But I hope I'm going to start saying that. Um, this is uh, Professor Victor Giselle with the first 23 minutes of uh, conversation we had a few days ago. Interested in uh, in the system that we have. We have a, a system called QXA, which is a a group that uh, at one time intermarried. Uh, they, uh, they they were in alliance with the Ojibwa. And they intermarried with them, and they adopted this uh, cross cousin marriage. So one band, the mother band, uh, which was the Isunya Tiriko. That group intermarried, so they, uh, because they violated the, uh, the, the system that we had, the northern, the northern groups that, that had the cross-cousin marriage, within, because of those people up there. So it, it was a uh, conflict between our, our uh, the group itself, but the, uh, the parent band is the one that married into that. And eventually they, they were called Kiyuksa, which means uh, marriage breakers, breakers of the, uh, and eventually our tribe divided among those lines, the one that wanted and one that didn't want and there was kind of a social civil war within. And eventually, uh, that's what caused our, uh, our groups to migrate out of Minnesota because they uh, get away from that. But in the clan system, it's a little bit different because you can't marry anybody in the same clan, same sign. Uh, usually, uh, in uh, in the uh, practicing of, uh, of recognizing kin, usually the uh, cro cross cousins move away, which leads a parallel because we had no such thing as parallel cousins, uh, parallel relationship because they were integrated as family. So, uh, but the original was a matrifocal system where, uh, much like Iroquois, we uh, traced our, our lineage from the uh, from the mother's side, and. Uh, but that started breaking up. But there's something about where you live, or uh, it's going to uh, bring uh, the division among the Apache folk or Apache folk. So in, in the woodlands area where they lived, uh, they didn't really have to uh, labor a lot to farm because nature, rainforest, all that, it, uh, it helped. But once you got out of that area, then it shifted to male. So all throughout our learning about our, our social systems, uh, we began to realize that it changes throughout time. And uh, try to get the, give you the good idea to study that. But, uh, and there's one I don't have that I wanted to get you, and it was, it was too big. It's called yeah. the Dakota Proclamation. Oh, yeah. yeah. You know, I, uh, I've been doing the, uh, I've been wor working with, uh, the um, wolf child, and he uh, he gave me the copy of that uh, uh, the doctrine. Uh, so I've been uh, I've been integrated in my classroom systems. We're, we're trying to uh, seek a way of uh, breaking off from the old Anglo-Saxon laws. Yes, and, and trying to uh, go back to traditional. 
So I got that, and we we did a number of uh, which uh, the doctrine of discovery. That's the one we've been uh, showing. And, uh, it's online. You can get that online. Uh, but it uh, there it defines uh, all the legal terms of Anglo-Saxon, and they the churches want to promote that. And now we have separation of church and state. So we're trying to seek means of uh, doing that and using our uh, traditional government because the government we have is uh, the, the IRA government, uh, which is not uh, not the right kind. And, uh, You're not giving this to me, are you? No. I, <laughs> I'm trying to get another copy. Uh, but you can get that online. Okay. Uh, if, if you get that, it's... Uh, uh, Wolf child, child and wolf child, uh, and you get a doctrine of discovery. That that's on there. If you contact them, you send your free copy. Okay. Yeah. Because it, you know, in order to mm -hmm. to claim sovereignty, you you have to yeah. have the right form, or they yeah. Yeah. they won't recognize yeah. it. Yeah, that is. Uh, we've been struggling to get that traditional government in there, and uh, and because we all adapted the to the IRA government. We still have treaty groups up that didn't that didn't uh, didn't sign into that. And I understand there's a difference between treaties and treatises. Yes, yeah. You under you know about that? Yeah. yeah. And that the treaties unless if the clan mothers yeah. weren't behind them then yeah. the treaties yeah. aren't really treaties yeah. and they can break them. Yeah. They're simply treatises. Well right now we got a a GNO status, some uh, that have that, that we got a uh, one sitting. Uh, we have a, uh, a desk over in, uh, uh, in Geneva, and we have our, our traditional government based there. And so we're trying to draw strength from that. So I was right to yeah. reach out to you. Yeah. You yeah. were the right person. Yeah. So we're uh, really interested in. Uh, I used to belong to the treaty council, but it's a puppet. It's a puppet dictated by tribal council. And, uh, that's why I got off the treaty, uh, the council. I'm, try, I'm, I'm trying to, um, we're trying to establish one where we go back to lineal descendants that signed the treaties. And my grandfather, Shooting Cat, is one that signed some of the treaties. So we're trying to, uh, he was saying all the doctors in there to go back to the legitimacy of who the signers were. And do you know who the clan mothers were? Yeah. yeah. You do? Right there. That was the, the uh, they call her medicine woman. She was the, the wife of uh, Shooting Cat. Oh, my goodness. And she, uh. She kept a perfect household, and uh, within her, she really groomed the the, uh, the boys to lead. Uh, but uh, so you know that the word "savage" yeah. actually means those who live amongst the trees, yeah. and is a compliment. Yeah. So we're that is the our lifelong dream is to go back to a traditional government if uh, if we get everybody on the same page. But uh, but we have. Uh, all battlefields out there uh, because of self-interest groups. A lot of our people are being acculturated, so they now don't really think treaties are are the right way, right path. Well, we're trying Is to, it true that the, in the in 408 AD that um, when the Visigoths were defeated, mm -hmm. that the chief that North and South America, the, yeah. the Americas Empire, that 
the chief clan mother for the America Swiss Dakota, yeah. and that they were there and signed yeah. that treaty. That is true. Yeah. And that's the ultimate strength, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. And then that in 1491, um, the British gave their land title back to the Romans, yeah. and then in 1492, and that's what gave rise to Columbus being yeah. ciphered as a pirate, yeah. and all that is true. Yeah. Now, so we're, uh, so we're attempting to uh, open it, but we've done a lot of groundwork, because I teach a lot of tribal government stuff, we're trying to go back and open a path so people have an understanding of where we came from. Are you willing to speak on the air about this? I do this, yeah. I think I told you, I've been yeah. doing this radio program yeah. since August called Standing with Standing Rock, Savage yeah. Sovereignty. Yeah. Um, you will? Yeah. Oh. Yeah, I could uh, probably get involved in that as I'm already trying to expand out and uh, push that movement to get that to be accepted. And if we get enough in there, we're trying to get the Pope, uh, the Pope to try to uh, reverse yes. those people rules that came out. And then all the land yeah, returns yeah. to... And then we would be on equal legal field with, with the United States. That's what they were trying to do. And, uh, the man looks like the, the right person to go, but we still... Uh, it's going to be hard work. But that's the ultimate goal is to, because we ran out of options, the uh, courts, because Dr. Sinclair and me on the blackheads are shut down now. It only goes one way. And uh, so our dream is to open up that if we could get the Pope to renounce those doctrines, it would be able to get that on the same footing internationally. Uh, yes. The international uh, people have already uh, sided with us. It's just that they don't have power to push Well, I understand that all the wealth of yeah. the Vatican actually yeah. is owed to the tribes. Yeah. Is that your understanding yeah. too? Yeah, so the uh, the income, the end system that imposed on the tribes in the southwest it extended out to northern tribes. So we were nothing but the stepping stone. Well, I understand first they yeah. murdered all the European yeah. tribes to wipe out the records yeah. before they came over here. Yeah. But that's really, uh, we uh, try to seek an uh, understanding of how we can go. The problem here on the Rosebud, most of the Lakota reservations, is that we have incomplete nuclear families that are really high, roughly about 40 to 50 percent. If we can get the families to function, get them back on the same page, and we'll go back to the matrilineal system, matrifocal. But it's kind of hard at this stage because it's broken families. Can it, can it be done spiritually it, to it, replace, since you can't trace necessarily? Well, the important Can it be done through yeah, ceremony? The, the important ingredient is to get spirituality back in. That's why we're so, uh, we're so uh, willing to go out and, uh, and uh, promote that star, star knowledge, which uh, we uh, are able to show that land forms are, are God-given, that we communicate with the above below. Everything they're trying to do with their technologies, done spiritually, naturally. Yeah. Yeah. So that's the one of our main goals. Uh, so. Uh, and I'm here at your service. Yeah. 
but this is why I'm here. Yeah. It's for this work. Yeah. That's one of the uh, biggest problems that we're trying to get them to honor a tree because of health. Because of rules, but the health is a fellow falling apart. It's uh, stripped of all the, the funding and uh, clean house fighting. And, uh, so we have to, uh, it's, Rosewood has a large referral service. They got a multi multi million dollar complex, yet they cannot do operations. They don't have they don't have uh, the doctors to fill those positions, and uh, so they have to refer them to Sioux Falls, or San Francisco, and, and uh, Rapid City. So the, so we have to travel there whenever doctors. So we cannot go on our own to see doctors. We have that referral system within that within what they got. But uh, that's one of the uh, uh, tree requirements that they, they reneged on. So we have a lot of issues out there trying to uh, get them to uh, to obligate uh, the tree systems. And uh, people like Trump, they're taking all that power away, that budgeting, the funding. And, uh, so we're uh, at a point where we have to go back to something to reform the government. Maybe Go back to natural, natural yes. fabric, and then and then get them to honor treaties because. Uh, so, have you chosen your clan mother yet? We haven't yet because we're. Uh, I'm trying to get. Uh, well, one thing we did though, I brought all in my uh, grandchildren. Uh, I have a, a large house. I brought in all my grandchildren, uh, my great grandchildren. I'm raising all of them because they're they're one side of their. Uh, like my son-in-law's dog, I said, all died. And, uh, the other ones, uh, they couldn't find jobs, so I got them all in. I got 19 living in my house. Oh. So that's the beginning of uh, <laughs> yes. the traditional way that... Uh, yes, longhouse. We have these clan homes with uh, maybe four or five families in there. So I'm trying to raise them the best I can. Uh, indeed, I'm not getting any help. Uh, well, the and, uh, my mission, I mean, and I'm... I think I told, I don't know if I told you why I'm so audacious to, my youngest daughter was born in a barn in the Star in Wisconsin near where Miracle had been born. I was, we were sent from a community we were living in in Arizona and creator said, go do this. I didn't have any idea what or why. So I'm in the White Buffalo Nation is our organization. I'm here. I yeah. think I gave you a card yeah. as a Free Nations ambassador and yeah. UN observer. So people will support. Yeah. And, um, you know, I mean, they've been sending money for me yeah. so I can drive yeah. around and stuff. But we can yeah. because that's what we're here to support, yeah. What is what you're doing. And we'll ask. Well, I say what I like to do is tell people where their donation will go. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? So, because I don't want to be raising help and then have somebody go off gambling. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's yeah. like, yeah. no, it has to go for the, yeah. you know, reestablishment yeah. of the nation. But, yeah. but expenses for the household, those are all legitimate. Yeah. So, yeah. oh, I'm so relieved, Victor. I spent my lifetime working there since uh, 1970. My wife works at that, so her and I, we uh, accumulate a lot of, we're on our social security, 
So that's what we have to, we can afford to do is our, raise our own grandchildren and uh, we're not getting any help. And I don't want help because uh, because we're going to do it together. Uh, but it's, again, it's, uh, we have to get our, our system here to get the families to function. One of the things that in tribal government we found that uh, if you're ground-based, which is the clan mothers, and the clan system, if they lay a good foundation, that's what the tribal government, the template of the tribal government runs on that. And it holds internationally. It will yeah. it will stop the black snake. It yeah. will stop Trump. Yeah, yeah. So we're, uh, we're, that's what we're trying to rebuild, reform the families. It's hard because even the tribal council don't want that agenda. They want to control. They want to keep getting they, the money. They want to control and get the money. Down. They don't want a functional government, a family system because they will uh, dictate. So they turned their backs when we asked for tribal reform, uh, social reform. But we're gradually getting, we had the government reformed. And at most, but there's kind of a miracle that came because uh, our government was based on a district system. We want to go back to the old Chiroshpai or community government. We had 21 traditional communities there and uh, that was taken apart into, into uh, districts. Finally, that we had a government reform that people stood past. They wanted all the communities to be equal. So we've got some of the larger communities, like uh, one of the communities that here at Antelope, it, it, had, it usually has uh, 3,000 people, as opposed to another one uh, in Wood, South Dakota, which, is only, which only has six families. So it's less than 500. In, in, uh, so the tribal council uh, usually picks representatives uh, so they, they overload the uh, represented more than the small ones. So now we're on the same page where we've got all the communities uh, equal, equal power. So that's a miracle that was done and they did the groundwork for it. Now we can go to uh, reform a lot better. But uh, all the years I've been teaching here, I seem to kind of reinvent the wheel. We take two steps forward and three steps backwards. It's because you know, the uh, tribal government, it bows to the wishes of the government. Uh, we have to get off uh, paternalism, BIE, and it, it's hard. So we need to bring more sustainable businesses yeah, yeah, here. That is what needs to be done. We need to uh, begin to uh, have a sustainable economy, which our original chiefs wanted. When they came here, they looked at this place and said, the only way we can run a sustainable type of system is to have uh, to convert kind of ranching style. We have buffalo would be able to run with them, horses, rather than farm. But that never happened. You actually do a farm. So I'll show you how. So with the uh, so original chiefs are right. And, uh, we go back to a sustainable economy. And my uncle, one of the sons at the start the University of Stanley Redford, he uh, was all for the sustainable economy. He uh, was able to get homes here, housing. And then he got into a project where he got rabbits. He's in uh, other wild uh, fowls, like the turkey. Uh, the rabbits he saw, he saw were abundant, so we could use them. We can uh, take the yeah, fur from them, make clothing. Yeah, there would be a sustainable way of doing things. I like hemp, too. Yeah, and 
then he had a, a turkey match with the, uh, the human wild and that goes so we can hunt him. Now he's looking for maybe deer or buffalo that we can uh, The universe got 500 buffalo on the tribe about about that much, so we're trying to build a herd uh, and we need more land, which land's being diminished. It's a whole, when we look down the line, it's a whole lot of uh, tasks that we before us. And uh, my lifetime is running, running short. And I've got other, uh, I'm grooming other people to take over. As I retire back to our family, rebuild that family system. But uh, we got some of uh, people, my, uh, the way I do things out there, I'm going to get them all involved too. And it's hard because they, uh, they're all unemployed. They live on a fixed income. If we're able to get the family one back on the street, we'll be able to uh, go back to the old Jewish by system. We'll all share things, and, uh, and it's uh, usually uh, I bought four cars, gave them to my kids. They they use them, and they they run errands for us, and uh, so we share about things. Nothing's really minded of it. My car I got there. The kids take it whenever they have to go get grocery stuff. But, uh, so everything is shared in the house. So everything, uh, if you put something down, you better watch it. Cause right, right. Yeah. <laughs> but the, uh, we shared everything uh, within that. All 19 of us in that the family, all uh, a lot of them unemployed, but they do things for me. I go and leave my car there with here. Flat, they do it. They fix it. The things they can do. But uh, again, it's uh, hard because uh, life is pretty rough here. Unemployment's high. And, uh, but still, we don't. I'm not really looking for monetary. I'm looking for more of a sharing type of economy. That, uh, I've always found that uh, when I first came or married, uh, before I got married, I uh, lived singly. And, uh, and when I didn't have a job, I, we, got, uh, we got annuities or uh, commodities. And I found that you cannot make it alone unless you hook up and they can share the things. It goes a long ways if maybe you have four people put in a pot once you get in quantities. And it, uh, it eventually got married, had a larger family, then that came easy. We were able to uh, do a lot of things in that area. But that is one of the uh, economies that we're trying to push. But again, it's difficult, it's difficult because uh, we're locked into the welfare system. Yes. It's bad because uh, the welfare here controls all the homes. So my furnace broke down. I couldn't get one. So I went to the housing. They, they wouldn't give me any. So I told them I can buy one from you guys. I said, I can make up 2000 maybe several months and get me. You can, uh, you can help me get one. Which is, no, we cannot take your money because this is a poverty fund. We get the money, we lose our poverty status. That's the type of mentality we have. So I have to go back and deal with the whites in the downtown to get the last thing I wanted because they'll make the money off of it. But I learned to uh, do furnace work too, so I get able to get that. So I ran this whole two inches without the, the, uh, the furnace. Uh, have, uh, trying to build chimneys and stuff like that. It's, uh, but it's, you got to go back and go back to the basics. And that's uh, really what uh, 
we lack. The technology is only good if you find some sensible use to it. Like this, you know, the uh, flash drives. I no longer buy books. This used to be all filled books. I know, me too. Yeah, and uh, I got most of my stuff on. And that was the um, beginning of uh, an hour and a half conversation that I had up in uh, Rosebud at the college with Professor Victor Duville, and we'll be listening to more of that in the future. And Rika, you're yeah. still with me. I want to thank you for joining us today. We're not going to be on the air next week because it looks like I'm going up to Standing Rock to uh, visit with uh, Joy Braun and uh, Distance Everhart and some other people. That's my birthday present to myself. My birthday is on Monday. <laughs> but uh, I hope you'll continue to join us, Rika, as we have these weekly programs and um I want to thank Eagle and Chief Phil for joining us. I believe uh, they're not with us at this point. Um, anything that you'd like to say in, in closing, Rika? Oh, I'd like to say thank you, Lisa, for inviting me on your radio station, and I'd like to thank my cousin, Phil Lane, and um, your friend, Eagle I Thank you. Um I'd love to be on your show again if I could, but not real soon because um, I'd like some more people here. Yes, well, we'll work on that. And like I said, we'll be back not next weekend, but the following Saturday. And I want to thank everyone uh, for listening to the Earth Aid program today and ask everyone to please support are standing with Standing Rock Savage Sovereignty and Water Protectors Mission by visiting GoFundMe.com backslash slope. And your contributions keep this mission going for the mending of the sacred hoop of life. And I'm particularly also asking for donations so that we can help um, Brother Gary Rowland replace uh, his water pump because he is having to haul water. And uh, thanks, Rika. Thank you, Lisa. Hey, um, we have a happy birthday and enjoy North Dakota. It's beautiful there, I hear. Oh, thank you. Thank you. And I, I like want to thank you for putting Victor on, even if it was recorded. I love that man. He's intelligent. He's brilliant. And I just like to hear his um, what he has to say. Thank you. Oh, thank you. And a special thanks to our sponsor, uh, Roland and Linda Thomas of BioH.com backslash Utopia, whose bio superfood algae is the answer for our bodies, for Fukushima and North American nuclear reactor leakage radiation to eliminate heavy metal toxicity and optimize our health. And we're going to listen to a short um, peace about that as we come to an end. Friends, nothing in life is more important than your good health. That's why I recommend Bioalgae Concentrates, Bio Superfood Nutritional Supplements. These supplements feed every cell in your body microscopically. No matter how you feel, Bioalgae Supplements will help you. 
Many people feel energized shortly after the first time they take it. And visit BioAge.com backslash Utopia or phone 877-288-9116 for more information and to order. And be sure to mention Utopia for a 15% discount. <laughs> Joining us together, let's sustain life on planet Earth. That's yours, mine, and all of ours on and in the land, waters, and air. Thanks for joining us. Till next time, this is Siava, Lisa Wolf for Slope. Save and sustain life on planet Earth. Earth aid now. Let's give the Earth and all her children freedom from fear, lack, and degradation and bring a utopian reality now. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.